Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krauss, and I hope you're doing well, staying happy, healthy, and safe. It is a jam-packed show, so let's get right at it. Later on, we're going to meet author Wayne Ng. Wayne is an award-winning short story and travel writer who was recently nominated for the Guernica Prize for his latest book, a family drama called The Family Code, which was, in part, inspired by his 30-year career as a social worker. We'll get to know Wayne a little bit later on in the show. We'll also meet Phil Delio. His new book, Happy for a While, American Pie, 1972, and the Awkward, Confusing Now, is a look at the famous Don McLean song and how to approach great art made by people whose personal transgressions become a matter of public record. That's also later on. First, let's get to know American film director, production designer, and screenwriter Catherine Hardwick. Her directorial work includes movies like 13, Lords of Dogtown, the mega-hit Twilight, Miss Bala, and most recently, Mafia Mama, among many, many others. Today, she's here to talk about her latest film, Prisoner's Daughter, a family drama starring Succession's Brian Cox as a father hoping to reconnect with his estranged daughter and her son. Here's director Catherine Hardwick. This is a movie about redemption, um, but I also wonder if you approached it as a family drama or if there are hints, because it's there in the movie, I don't know if this was your main thrust or not, of, of uh, prison reform and the idea that you can go to prison and come out rehabilitated, because I think both are very potent messages. What did you have in mind? I'm glad you thought, I, I mean, I think both layers work, and I, I was very conscious and excited about that prison reform thing. And so we have the moment where he says, you know, keep up with the steps and, you know, one day at a time. You can see that they've been working the program while they're in prison. Yeah. And Max is a new person. He doesn't drink anymore. He says, I'm not that man anymore. Mm -hmm. So the idea that there is hope for rehabilitation. We don't just have to lock people up and never come out. In fact, I think that Ty Tyler is going to go, after he gets beat up a yeah. bit, he's going to go in the program too and get rehabilitated. You have Brian Cox in this film as Max, and he, I mean, I know. <laughs> but he is uh, the, the person who finds his redemption, finds his rehabilitation. And there's a great scene where he talks to an old friend of his, played by Ernie Hudson. And who is fantastic in the movie and looks terrific for being 75 years old or whatever it is He's that he insane is. He's insane He made me yeah. mad. He looks so good. Uh, but uh, he says, was I, you know, how bad was I? And it's, it, it, this plays into the theme of, of rehabilitation. It's been so long, I think, that, that he'd kind of forgotten Yes. And put that life completely behind him. And I thought in that one moment, that one short exchange, we learned so much about him. That is such a cool moment. I love that. And and you're right. He said, "I'm kind. Of, everything's foggy now, you know, because he's changed. He has changed. He is a new person, or he's trying to be." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tell me a little bit about working with Brian Cox. He is such a powerful actor. But at this minute in popular culture, he is so aligned with Logan Roy, and yet I didn't feel like I was seeing Logan Roy in here at all, and that's the beauty of this performance. Yeah, you don't see Logan Roy. I mean, Logan Roy, this is a man who has been through so much change. He's been 12 years in prison. That changes you, and especially what he's gone through. So now his whole goal is to take those last moments of his life and find a way to connect. And it's just like these tender moments. He gets kind of slapped down by the daughter, but, you know, 
he doesn't give up. He's got another idea. I got another idea. Yeah. I got another. And then you see him in the pool with them. They have this one afternoon of happiness to me. I love that. Yeah. And we also have to talk about uh, Christopher Convery. Now, wow. you have an incredible knack for casting young actors. I remember interviewing you for the movie uh, 13. Oh, yeah. And Evan Rachel Wood, a revelation in that yeah. movie, had never seen Insane. her before. Yeah. The Twilight uh, actors, I want to call them kids, that all sounds dismissive, them, yeah. but all yeah. of them, right, uh, have gone on to do such interesting things. What do you look for when you're casting uh, young people? Well, in some ways, it's that uh, ability to be present in the moment, not overthinking things, and being, um, yeah, just right there and alive. And that curiosity and wanting to play with others, you know, mm -hmm. which, um, yes, Christopher had it. Well, he plays a character in the film who uh, is bullied at school. Um, he's smart, uh, probably smarter than the kids he's going to class with. He has um, epilepsy, and mm -hmm. he sort of, all those things have combined to sort of put him on the outside of the circle, right, in high right. school yes, at yes. least. And uh, I was afraid that I was going to see a precocious performance from him. And there's just, no, he just seemed <laughs> honestly like he wandered in off the street, you know, and, and <laughs> it was just so a, real, cool. yeah. a real kid. He's a real kid, and he's quite funny, and he's, you know, Christopher, I mean, imagine if you're told you're going to act, your biggest part you've had is going to be playing against Brian Cox and Kate, <laughs> and you have to hold your, like, one-on-one -on -one scenes with yep. both of them, and with Brian. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> you're listening to Catherine Hardwick on The Richard Krause Show. Her film, Prisoner's Daughter, starring Brian Cox and Kate Beckinsale, is on VOD now and will be available on DVD on August 15th. But he had confidence. He had confidence. He, he believed in himself. He felt what he felt, and he wasn't like he didn't step out and re, you know, rejigger, second-guess himself. Yeah. yeah. And we have Kate Beckinsale playing a single mother. Uh, who struggles to hold down regular work for a number of, of reasons. We don't mm -hmm. want to give anything away, yeah, but there's yeah. a number of reasons behind that. Um, interesting casting for me. She's so good in the movie, but when yeah. I think of her, I think of glamorous roles. I think of, right. and, and here yeah. we have a, a Las Vegas single mom who's struggling. So tell right. me about casting her and what you saw that put those two pieces together. Well, I had seen her in this very wonderful indie film that a friend of mine made called Farming yeah. and she plays did you ever see it yeah. and she plays remember that character I mean we've never seen <laughs> Kate looking or feeling or acting anything like that I thought wow Kate can do that she's <laughs> radical and then when she seemed to be interested in this I thought that would be fascinating. We're well, not used to seeing her go here, so I want to see her do it. You know, yeah. and of course she committed to it and did well, a beautiful job. And you get the this idea of her backstory. There's one quick moment where you see you were a backup singer for Cher yeah. or a backup dancer yeah, for yeah. Cher. So you know, you, it, all the pieces fit. Yes, right? yes. As, as and you see her working there. backstage, and yeah. she said she had a few tough moments on that stage, yeah. but then she got pregnant. You know, you kind of age out of the dancing yeah. thing in Vegas. You age out of the high-end restaurants mm -hmm. in Vegas. So she's, you know, just working at everything she can, yeah. Tell me a little bit, too, about portraying 
um, the working class Las Vegas. Because again, when most of us think of Las Vegas, mm -hmm. we think of one street, don't yeah. you? We think, don't... think of the Strip and then Fremont Street, and that's about all right. anybody right. most knows about Las Vegas. Tell me about creating that feel of well, the, the backside, yeah. yeah. Well, like that's why we have the laundry scene, you know, where you walk through this laundry and you yeah. realize all the towels and sheets they're doing are for the hotels yeah. so that we can go to the pool. In, in <laughs> giant washing machines and there's dozens of people cleaning them. It's really And something. there's huge <laughs> bags and, you know, of course it takes all that to feed the beast, mm -hmm. you know, of the towel. We, we throw our towels and you know, everything. So that was like actually the first day I got to Vegas, I went to that place. I'm like, wow, this is the kind of thing we need to show. Yeah. Like the boxing gym, you see the back sides yeah. of the billboards. Yeah. You don't see the front of the billboards. Right. See the backside. To me, the backside of Vegas, fascinating. And driving your kid to school in Vegas, past the fountains. <laughs> Why Las Vegas? Well, it it really works for this story because Max was a boxer, and involved with shady yeah. guys, and then she was a dancer, and you know, because Kate's so beautiful, you know, she had to have had some awesome dream before. Right. So I feel like it really worked with the kind of like the backside, the shady life he had before. You know, mm -hmm. he, like he said, if something's too easy. You know, it seemed too easy. He just started getting in, making flashy money, you know. Yeah. We really get this idea of where we are. And right. that's so important because it tells most of, well, not most of, but it tells you a lot about the story that you need to know. And, and uh, tell me, why is that so important? To well, you? Uh, I'm trained as an architect, so of course I love space I and visuals. Yeah, yeah. I used to be an architect. And, and the thing is, like, this house really mattered because this is the house that she grew up in. That Max bought it when he had some flashy cash or whatever, and it had to have been there, you know, at least like 50 years. And they a lot of things change <laughs> after so like I literally myself personally knocked rang the doorbells of over 50 houses that I thought looked good from the outside till I found that house and then having to shoot in it I mean it's tight it was hot yeah. it felt like a it was a character that kitchen had seen all that stuff the burns on the carpet we're really there. Really? Yeah, yeah. Because you, you worked that in. Visually, yeah. you worked that into the story. But that was there. So, that was there. So for people, so they know, uh, at one point, as, as, you, as we're seeing the house, we see a burn mark on the carpet. And again, it's like a little character. It tells you a lot about yeah. what's going on there. And, uh, and then you see how it got there. And it starts to fill in the gaps of of Kate Beckinsale's character story mm -hmm. in a, in a yeah. really beautiful way. Yes, yes. <laughs> and that was there. Yeah, that it, was, was there. Was it like a little improv moment for you? Oh, uh, well, I saw it and I'm like, I have got to feature that because this is so much and it, it really made me fill in her character's backstory yeah. and what had gone through that house. So, you know, there's a hole, hole punched yeah. in the wall. There are cracks in the wall. There's, you know, the old writing of how yeah. the kid grew up and then it stops at yeah. a certain point. So all that was just adding the layers of the history. Well, you know that the ironic thing about all of this is that the money that you paid those people to use their house, they're replacing that carpet. They're fixing the cracks in the walls. They're taking all the character out of that place right now. Yeah, well, it did need a little help. <laughs> I gotta admit that. <laughs> that was Catherine Hardwick on The Richard Krause Show. Her film, Prisoner's Daughter, starring Brian Cox and Kate Beckinsale, is on VOD now and will be available on DVD on August 15th. 
In this segment, we're going to meet social worker and author Wayne Ng. He's an award-winning short story and travel writer who continues to push his boundaries from the Arctic to the Antarctic blogging and photographing along the way. Wayne was recently nominated for the Guernica Prize for his latest book, The Family Code. The new novel is a gritty family drama featuring the troubled life of a character named Hannah, a young single mother dragged by the brutality of past traumas and a code of silence that she must crack in order to be free, or she just might lose everything. Wayne Ng joined me via Zoom from Ottawa. You were a social worker for three decades. I wonder... Uh, if you were secretly writing during that whole time, were you an evening and weekends writer or had writing been something that was always part of your life? And then at a certain point, you decided to turn to it a bit more seriously. How did it work for you? You know, there's always been a creative side to me, but, you know, I, I grew up the son of Chinese immigrants. You know, my parents didn't read English. They didn't speak English. You know, a career in writing isn't something that I ever took seriously, and it's certainly not something that they would have nurtured. You know, they like most immigrant parents, they would have wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer, and I became none of those things. Um, I stumbled into social work because um, I didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember taking a career aptitude test at one point, and my results were teacher, clergyman, and social work. <laughs> so I got into social work. Seven years later, I had a career crisis, took another career aptitude test, and my results were teacher, clergyman, and social work. <laughs> so I, I just assumed I was fated to be a social worker all these years. But I, I've always had a creative itch, and I did do short stories. I think I started 20, 25 years ago. Never thought it was anything other than a lark. Mm-hmm. you know. Um, and then when I stumbled into novel writing, I was just trying to keep up with my friends in a writing group. They were way more serious than I was. Right. You know, I really truly believed I was fated to be a traveler and a writer. Uh, or, sorry, a traveler and a social worker. Writing, I stumbled into. And I, you know, I'm pleased to say that dreams can happen late. And, you know, it's never too late to start, which, you know, I was 55 when my first novel came out. I'm working on my fifth novel now, so um, I'm only a social worker uh, for a few more weeks. My boss doesn't know yet. I'm walking. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I hadn't in my retirement papers. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to full-time writing. I think it's it's interesting that these aptitude tests that you would take uh, pointed you towards teacher, clergyman, and social work. You did social work for many years. Uh, Writer probably was number five or six on the list. But all those things are joined by empathy. You need empathy uh, to be able to do any of those jobs, I think, efficiently. (laughs) Um, Do you think that as a social worker, that empathy was a a big component in your work? Um. If you want to be, as you said, efficient, if you want to be a good social worker, just like a good writer, you you really need to be able to tap into the deep recesses of your own emotional experiences. You need to go into the dark places and you need to pull that out to join with your clients or to create deep, meaningful characters. You don't have to have, have lived their lives, but you have to be able to access really vulnerable, difficult experiences. And the example I like to use is Louise Penny, who she freely admits, you know, she writes deep, dark characters because she was one. She was not a likable person. Yeah, she had a serious addictions problem, cleaned herself up, 
but she draws upon those experiences and that part of her life to create the antagonists in her stories, which makes them so rich. And it looks to me, looking at your body of work thus far, uh, that you have looked at your uh, work and your experiences there and taken them away and and use those as inspiration. So when I look at a book like The Family Code, I think that there probably must be more than a, a kernel of truth in here uh, or of lived experience uh, through the, the people that you were um, consulting with as a social worker. Well, you know, in 30 plus years, I've probably spoken to thousands of people and had thousands of sessions. Mm. Um, and I, you know, I didn't grow up with a lot of emotional intelligence, to be perfectly honest, Richard. <laughs> I came by it. I had to acquire that. And you really need to have that as a social worker and I think a good writer. You're listening to author Wayne Ng on The Richard Krause Show. His new novel, The Family Code, is available wherever fine books are sold. So when I have a kid or a parent come into me and they share deep, intimate, personal, vulnerable experiences, they're handing me a gift. Mm -hmm. You know, and I really, really appreciate that. I wouldn't have been able to do that as a child. I wouldn't have been able to do that as a young adult either. So this book is a culmination, or shall I say an homage to the many gifts that they've given me, because I realize how truly meaningful those interactions were, not only to them, but to me. So I wanted to really capture the essence of their experiences and to honor it, as, as I say. And the Family Code is a complicated book in in one way. You have essentially kind of two narrators. You've got the mother character, uh, Hannah, who is negligent, uh, I think is probably uh, safe to say. Kind. It's kind. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's kind, I think. Uh, and her uh, son, Axel, who's also a narrator. So tell me a little bit about... Um, keeping it straight, making sure it makes sense to the reader. You know, more complex structures uh, often seem like a great idea when you first think about them. <laughs> and then later, yeah. as you're actually doing the writing uh, or show it to a first reader who has to kind of decipher what you mean, and you realize, oh, that's that's harder than I thought. Yeah, you know, so Axel and Hannah, they're, they're works of fiction, but they're everyday people. They're generic mm -hmm. They're composites. They, they could be your neighbors. They could be you or I, Richard, to be yeah. perfectly honest. They're people who, quite frankly, behave very poorly. You know, they're human dumpster fires. They're rude. They're confrontational. They could be profane. They could be racist. We see them all around us. And having worked in education and social services for all these years, we were confronted with this all the time. And you, you have to force yourself not to judge that. You know, and very often we lapse into clinical terms and say, you know, they're, they're trauma survivors, they've got depression, anxiety, reactive attachment disorder, abandonment issues. That tells you nothing about these people because these people, they're hurt people hurting people, you know, and scared people can be scary. You know, their lives are so not that different than yours and I in that we would do, we would scratch and claw, we would do anything we could if every day, every moment was a test in survival. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to make them completely accessible. You pick up this book, they're going to be the last people you're going to sit with on a long bus ride to Winnipeg. <laughs> but by the end of that bus ride, you're going to be rooting for them. Even if you don't like them, you're going to get them because their, their struggle to survive and just get by 
um, it's a very universal human experience, which I think we can all relate to, whether you know, you're a single white female like Hannah or you're a six-year-old boy like Axel. How did you learn to shake off some of the stories that you were hearing? You're dealing with people who are in crisis and uh, experiencing trauma. How do you uh, let that go or, or are you able to? Is writing the way you let it go? Writing definitely allows me to channel it somewhere. But, uh, you know, if I've had thousands of really difficult stories and sessions, that means I've absorbed thousands of emotional hits from other people. Not that they were hitting me, but like you take their pain, right? But to stay in this business for a long time, like in any business, you have to separate yourself from it sometimes. So I, I try and have another life outside of work mm -hmm. and that was traveling it's riding it's hopping on my bike it's swimming you have to have other things because if you're living and breathing something that's emotionally exhausting like that i mean it, it's what we call right vicarious trauma then you're living their trauma and you you can't allow yourself to do that because you're just not going to last long in the business so it's just it's an occupational hazard that you have to guard against so you have to have separation of work mm -hmm. from the rest of your life I have always said that uh, it's very difficult to have a job uh, that you love in the sense that it doesn't love you back. <laughs> and so when, <laughs> when you uh, are, are released from the job, if you get fired, if you whatever, it can be very, very difficult for people. You know, you love yeah. it, but it doesn't love you back. And you do have right. to look after yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Your books are all so different. I guess they're bound by your experience with people and your ability to create characters because of the experiences that you've had as a social worker. But Finding the Way is a political thriller with a with a philosophical bent set in uh, 6th century BC. You've got uh, the other book, um, uh, Letters from Johnny, which is a, a child's view of the FLQ crisis in Quebec. Uh, tell me a little bit about coming up with these story ideas, and uh, the, they all seem so different, bound by character for sure, uh, but they all seem so different. Yeah, they 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 all appear at first glance to be character-driven novels, but mm -hmm. yeah, and most stories are character, plot, setting, or thematically based. I think I I start my novels with a message. What is it that I want to say? What do I want the readers to walk away feeling, thinking, and pondering? So, in fact, that's what I start with. I, I start with a, a pitch line. I start with a bit of a synopsis or a back of the book. This is what it's going to be about. This is what I want to say. So um, I think the common element to all of them, Richard, is there's stories about who we are, where we belong, and where do we want to go. That's the eternal human experience. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter, matter whether you're a son of an immigrant, or you're a wandering ancient philosopher, or you're a, a single mother. Um, we all want to know who we are because that changes over life. You know, you and I, Richard, have just had a significant birthday. You know, at some point we start pondering, who are we? You know, where do we belong? Where am I going with this? Right? You know, we ask we ask that question of ourselves whether we're teenagers, entering a marriage, leaving a marriage, kids leave the home switch jobs we all ponder that question and these are major transition and turning points in our lives some people navigate that really well 
Okay. They don't make good stories. It's the people who struggle <laughs> with that transition. They're the ones that I want to talk about. Do you have writers that you have looked to uh, for inspiration? Oh, geez. I don't know. Where do I begin? Um, a couple of Asian Canadian writers I've been reading, like Lindsay Wong, Kevin mm. Chong, uh, Charles Yu, who's American. I really like their work because they, they don't follow the classic immigrant story trope where the family is heroic, you know, sacrificing. It's all about shame, you know, standing up to and surviving uh, racism and doing it quietly, being humble. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of been done. So these writers, you know, have sort of tried to write stories of racialized people as everyday people without that sort of backdrop because not every racialized or marginalized person wants to be identified for that alone. There are stories over and above the immigrant experience. I mean, yeah, it's it's a big part of it. It's like saying a woman's struggle has nothing to do with patriarchy. Well, it's hard to walk away from that. It's there, but I don't think all women writers want to talk about patriarchy and misogyny. Sometimes they just want to talk about, you know, I don't know, parenting, their friendships, whatever. So I respect writers who do things a little bit different, which sort of is where I am with my five novels, three of which are out, another one coming out next year, and a fifth, which is in progress. I don't fall into any one particular genre, Richard, other than they're all different. There's stories I, I would like to read myself. There's stories that I find interesting to write. And, you know, there isn't a particular formula that I'm following. Do you think that this uh, ability to craft all these different kinds of stories, uh, underpinnings, for sure, uh, that they have in common. But do you think that you could have done this when you were 20, when you were 25 years old? Do you think that the advantage that you have here is that you have life experience uh, and that life experience has given you a broad range of interest and a broad range of uh, ideas to pull from? I think so. You know, you see some writers, you know, who do extremely well in their 20s and 30s and like, how do you write about stuff like that if you haven't lived it? You're listening to author Wayne Ng on The Richard Krause Show. His novel, The Family Code, is available wherever fine books are sold. Which may not be a fair question because they've written great work. I don't want to mention any names because we all mm -hmm. know some young, exciting writers. But I was pretty immature, at the, <laughs> you know, in my 20s. You know, I... I didn't know enough about life, let alone myself, to be able to be, to be making stuff up about other people. You know, so I think I, you know, I talked about me not having a lot of emotional intelligence, the necessary emotional intelligence to connect with people. And I needed that as a mature adult before I could really work with people, mm -hmm. to be effectively working with people and to be effectively writing about people. Some people could do it at, at a young age, but I, I think... I, I'm far more confident as a writer now than I was when I started in my 30s in short stories. And I think life experiences and really being really being able to get in as to say the deep, dark caverns of my own emotional psyche and that of other people has really made me more intuitive and just more critical and analytical. Well, I think probably also more open to absolutely the, uh, to this sort of uh, emotionality that you have to mm -hmm. have to be able mm -hmm. to you have to be able to uh, expose it to be able to express it. For sure. For sure. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, I could read about taking apart my sink, 
you know, I can watch it on YouTube, yep. but until I try and do it again and again, I'm never going to figure it out, right? It's, it's It becomes theoretical until it's abstract until you actually do it. And I needed to live it and to do it before I got good at it. Uh, in Letters from Johnny, uh, Maple Leafs captain Dave Keon plays a, a big part. Was he a hero of, of yours when you were a youngster? Oh, absolutely. Him. Spider-Man, uh, but you know, <laughs> Dave Keon was real. Like he, I even wrote to him. I still write to him. Yeah. He's still my hero. He's still, he's still as decent a man now as I thought he was as, as a child. And you know how they say, you don't want to meet your heroes. Oh, well, I sort of got to, and he's still very much a hero. Wow. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, you mentioned Dave Keon and I'm a child again. He just yeah. brings me back, yeah, into time when I was that kid, just worshiping him because, yeah, I didn't have the best childhood. You know, my parents struggled. They were immigrants. We didn't have a lot of money, and it was free-range parenting, you know. Um, so I, I, I just ran amok, right, yeah. in the streets of downtown Toronto, draft dodgers, FLQ crisis. Um, and as I say in the story, the only way I made sense of things was by writing letters and mm. As I as I outline in the in the novel, I wrote to Dave Keon, which I did in real life. And what is it about travel that inspires you to write as well? I'm far more relaxed when I travel. You know, I'm 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 naturally an, an introvert, but when I travel, I'll talk to anybody. You know, on the bus, in the market, I'll use a universal translator through Google. I'll talk well into the night with the guy working reception in a hotel. It just brings out a curiosity. Like here, as a social worker, I get paid to listen, to talk to people. I love doing it. It's like playing in the NHL. I'm getting paid to do something I enjoy. But it's difficult work, Richard. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, uh, it, it does wear on you mentally. Uh, and sometimes I just need to not talk to anybody. But when I go traveling, I want to talk to people out of curiosity, not because it's part of my practice. And it's just... It just it just feels liberating when I'm traveling and I you know demands met on me and I do some great writing when I'm traveling. Uh, it's just freeing. And it's a great opportunity for creative juices to flow. Well, Wayne, thank you so much. What a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you, Richard. This is fantastic. I appreciate it. That was author Wayne Ng on The Richard Krause Show. His novel, The Family Code, is available wherever fine books are sold. My guest, Phil Delio, writes about pop culture with a focus on music and how it influences our lives. His latest book is Happy for a While, American Pie, 1972, and the Awkward Confusing Now. It's a look at the famous Don McLean song and why 1972, the year American Pie went to number one on the Billboard charts for four weeks, is such a formative year for so many people. We talk about the music and how we might digest art by people who have done bad things. Here's a bit of trivia. At 8 minutes and 42 seconds, American Pie was the longest song to ever hit number one, a record it held for almost 50 years before Taylor Swift's All Too Well, the 10-minute version, broke that record in 2021. Phil Delio joined me via Zoom. Tell me a little bit about why 1972, the year American Pie came out, was such a special year for music. For me personally, it was, as I've written 
about many times and written about this book. It was a year I really um, became immersed in Top 40 radio. And that had to do, uh, a lot of that had to do with, I was in grade five and I uh, came down with both the measles, German measles and chicken pox in the same year. So I think I probably all told spent about three or four weeks at home in bed. And um, I, I, I think my dad just gave me a transistor radio and <laughs> it wasn't, you know, top 40 wasn't completely new to me. I knew it from the car and from public settings, but it was the first time I had really spent a lot, a lot of time alone with the radio and, um, and the songs, it's, it's just so weird. My friend Scott jokes about it. The songs that were on the, on the chart, on the chum chart, like February 72, those songs are just so key to me in a way that it's hard for me to explain. I mean, some of them are great songs that are considered great songs. Some of them aren't considered great songs. A good example being something like uh, Climax is Precious and Few. And just because they hit me at the right time, they still kind of loom large in my imagination. And I can't defend it. So there's that on a personal level. Um, drawing back from that, I just think it's a year the 70s hadn't quite found its identity yet. Mm. The Beatles had broken up a couple of years earlier. It's uh, well before disco and punk. Um, you know, it's even sort of just on the cusp of glam. And nobody really knew the where the decade was going yet. And there was so much interesting stuff. It's like everybody was throwing everything at the wall kind of trying to see what would stick. I have this theory that decades don't really start uh, on the zero, but by uh, the fives, by the time you get to 75, 85, 95, that's when the real change starts. You're absolutely right. And it really applies to 72 um, because, and even, you know, going way back, I'm not sure if, the, if this was one of the books you've interviewed Scott and me for, but when we wrote our 70s book, I Want to Be Sedated, we kind of, right at the beginning, we said the 70s began like most decades began. The 60s hung around for a couple more years. You know, um, I, I don't think the 70s really began, the 70s, you know, in the popular imagination till about 74, 75. Mm -hmm. um, now, you know, disco is, is starting to make its mark. You get stuff happening out of New York in terms of the Ramones and that. You're listening to Phil Delio on The Richard Krause Show. His book, Happy for a While, American Pie, 1972, and The Awkward, Confusing Now, is available wherever fine books are sold. You have a lot of bands like Crosby, Stills, and Nash, um, and, uh, and The Grateful Dead. A lot of holdovers from the 60s who aren't really suited to the 70s. They're still releasing big selling albums, but radio top 40s changing. Don McLean had uh, at least one other hit, Vincent, but American Pie is the song that everybody remembers. Why do you think it is that he was never able to replicate the success of that song? Yeah, I think that is really a once in a lifetime song. Uh, I'm not that big on Vincent. Um, the rest of the first album, you know, I didn't write about the album because I don't think it's all that interesting. There was oddly yeah. enough one song from his first album that ended up being a prominent episode closer in Mad Men. Um, I don't think they necessarily use his version. It's called Babylon. Mm -hmm. He had a couple of hits later on in the decade, which kind of ironically, he's covering older songs. He, he had a hit with Roy Orbison's Crying. Right. Uh, it was top 10. And I think he had another uh, cover song that, a cover version that maybe grazed the top forward. Um, and the other thing is, you know, and this is this is the uh, kind of 
un, unforeseen turn that my book took. He got into some pretty bad personal troubles. Well, I, I wanted to ask you about this. So this yeah. book was originally written for Duke University Press for their singles yeah. uh, collection. And then it, the news came to light that he had pled guilty to uh, domestic violence charges and the book was scrapped. By releasing it now, do you feel that the, the art transcends the person that made it? Or uh, what's your take on that? Yeah, that's, that's what I addressed in the epilogue to the book. Um, it was actually... The, the charges were 2016. I didn't know anything about them. This book was launched in 2019. I got the acceptance from Duke University Press and everything was ready to go forward. I started writing it. And then a friend pointed out to me, he said, oh, you know, you know what happened, McLean? I didn't know anything about it. And uh, um, the guy I was working with at Duke University Press, Joshua Clover, he didn't know anything about it. The only thing I knew was that when I found out about this, that was going to be a real problem. And mm -hmm. though Joshua didn't outright say we couldn't do the book, he we had a different view on it. He thought the Don McLean's personal issues had to be front and center right from the start of the book. I said uh, I, I would really like to leave it for the epilogue and just write the book I was going to write about. And then for sure, I'll mention the epilogue. We didn't see that in the same way. So, we, you know, we parted on good terms. He was very supportive at the beginning. Um, you know, I've, I, that's what I grapple with. Like, I can't give you a, when you say, where do I come down on that? That's a really hard question. That is one, I think it's in terms of, you know, what you and I do movies and, and pop music, it is kind of the great issue of the moment. Mm -hmm. What do you do with people? Like if a song or a movie has meant a lot to you through your life, do you just drop them as soon as you find out about this stuff or, is there, you know, some point at which you're not willing to go past, but before that you're okay? And I, I quote a couple of friends in my, I refer to two or three friends who are at complete opposite ends of the uh, spectrum on that. Um, my one friend who now says he's sort of adopted or modified his view, but he's someone who, when I was writing the book, basically he found out awful stuff about someone that was it. He had no use for that artist anymore. But then I've got two friends who are kind of at the other side where I said they almost dig in deeper because they don't want anybody telling them, you know, you can't listen to this person. And I fall somewhere in between. The point I make is that when Don McLean records American Pie or when Roman Polanski made, makes Rosemary's Baby, they then put that out into the world and that piece of art has a life of its own. And I can write about Rosemary's Baby without giving a second thought to Roman Polanski. Other people see it differently. And I respect that. I understand that. Especially when you get into the idea of, is this person getting royalties from this? Mm -hmm. Is this benefiting that person? Um, I know that in the one Batman film, they used the Gary Glitter song spectacularly, I thought. And they made sure that he didn't get any, you know, or the law made sure that he didn't get anything from that. But there's all sorts of things to consider, and everybody's going to be different on that question. It's a very difficult question. That was Phil Delio on The Richard Krause Show. His book, Happy for a While, American Pie, 1972, and the Awkward, Confusing Now, is available wherever fine books are sold. Big thanks to Phil. Also, a big thanks to Catherine Hardwick. Her film, Prisoner's Daughter, is on VOD now and will be available on D. DVD on August 15th. And a big thanks to Wayne Eng. His novel, The Family Code, is available wherever you buy fine books. Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay safe, stay healthy, stay weird, and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye.